And that's my cue. Welcome, everyone, to Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. I am Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, and joining me in the virtual studio for our month and slightly tardy, because we're in August as we speak, of Pop Health Review is my, are my colleagues, Fred Goldstein, that's F.S. Goldstein on Twitter, and Douglas Goldstein, no relation, at eFuturist. Fred is the co-founder and co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week, while Doug joins us for this month-end wrap-up. Today, we highlight last month's key takeaways from the Population Health and Primary Care Leadership Series, as well as some newsworthy stuff, of which there's quite a bit, on the road to the triple aim. Hey, guys. Hey, Greg. How are you today? Doug, you there? Hello. Hello. <laughs> Sounds like you're in Carlsbad Cavern somewhere. <laughs> uh, where, where might we find you two guys as we broadcast today, Sunday, August the 2nd? Well, Greg, it's Fred, and I'm in Jacksonville, Florida again. Enjoyed a beautiful weekend down here. Thanks. And I'm and in Alexandria, Virginia, fresh from the city open in Washington, D.C. Awesome. So for those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a subject matter expert with deep roots in the hospital health plan, health wellness and prevention space from disease management to population health. Fred's a board member and past chair of the Population Health Alliance, also known as PHA, having served most recently as its executive director and now captains the ship at Accountable Health LLC, a co-sponsor of this broadcast. And Doug is a popular speaker, author, and consultant specializing in business development, strategic venture formation, and currently serves as the national chair for the Health 2.0 Regional Innovate Smarter Roundtable Series. I'm Greg Masters, at 2HealthGuru on Twitter, and the co-founder and CEO of Health Innovation Media and publisher of ACOWatch.com. So guys, been a busy week, busy month. So let's catch up on uh, what we did. Fred, let's first up recap what we did last month in our series on population health and primary care innovation. Thanks, Greg. Uh, We had a great month. I thought it was really interesting to talk to the four physicians. We started the month off with Roy Hinman, a uh, primary care physician who runs a global risk capitated Medicare Advantage practice in Northeast Florida. Uh, and then we moved on to Rashika Fernandapule, and Rashika from Iora Health, the CEO and, and founder of that organization, also does a uh, capitated type arrangement for his practice. We then moved on to Jay Lee from California with Memorial Care, a very innovative uh, group practice out there. And Jay is also the current president of the California Academy of Family Practice. And we close the month off with the godfather, one of the founders of the patient-centered medical home, Paul Grundy with IBM. I found the uh, four talking about population health and what they were doing very interesting, particularly um, the early discussions from both Roy and and um, Rashika talking about how they essentially threw out the this concept of fee-for-service and went to either global risk or uh, or primary care and other risk but having essentially no fee for service within their practice and was wondering as we worked through those issues whether 
that sort of was what needed to happen globally for everybody in order to reach population or health or not. And that sort of was reinforced, at least in my mind, when um, Jay talked about memorial care being about 60 to 70 percent capitated and about 30 percent fee for service, but still experiencing some difficulty in moving to population health and implementing those services. And in closing up, I thought Paul's comments were interesting as well around that, where he felt that we will reach that tipping point, particularly with the changes to CMS reimbursement. But I'm not really sure we're going to do that. And was wondering, Greg, after you heard the four doctors, what were some of your thoughts on that? Well, I was fascinated by the rich uh, context and uh, insights that that all three provided. Uh, It was a nice contrast from the point of view of, um, shall we say, alternative care, primarily uh, through Dr. Fernanda Poli and Iora Health, which is a direct practice model. This represents, for the most part, a sort of exit of the traditional billing and collections system of primary care and movement into uh, retainer or membership medicine where there's no third-party intermediary. So he singularly had perhaps the most, quote, innovative of the three. Grundy was, uh, as you noted, uh, the godfather of the patient-centered medical home. And for the most, this is about building out core competencies and capabilities in prime, uh, primary care homes. And the surprising part of that to me was we weren't necessarily just talking about primary care physicians that a patient-centered medical home could be literally located at the center of gravity of any practice up to and including specialties and that its origins were in uh, open heart surgery. I thought that was fascinating. And as far as um, Dr. Lee, he he was amazing uh, being a fresh voice, uh, a new and emerging leader, particularly as he's the president of the California Academy of Family Physicians and very active in a rather proactive health system here in California called Remo- Memorial uh, Health System, which is the Memorial Long Beach um, flagship and multiple affiliates all the way down in uh, South Orange County, including Saddleback and Mission South Coast. So. The three of them were awesome, contrasting their different approaches, but the bottom line was that you can't do coordinated, seamless care with the, without core and strong primary care-centered leadership. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that completely. I think this the concept of putting together these teams and also playing certain roles, as they all talked about, they each had roles within it. Was, was something that was very important that came across and obviously the need to, to shift reimbursement. And I do think Iora Health and what Rashika has done is really stepping out there. And it was really interesting to me to see primary care physicians stepping up and saying, hey, we have a major role to play here. We're gonna take that step and, and grab a hold of it. Um, and, and particularly some of the work that Jay was doing around uh, family medicine revolution, et cetera. And, and grab that role and say, we're going to help fix this system. And they did. They've come up with some really innovative ideas. And now the question is, will those ideas be able to spill out far enough in the system? And I'm not sure, Doug, as you've traveled around, have you been? Have you seen this kind of taking hold elsewhere? Or are these uh, leaders sort of way out in front? I believe they're way out in front. I think you have... In each market, you have some early innovators, but it's certainly 
the very, very tip of the iceberg. And the big question is, is what they're doing enough given all these insurance mergers? Because the Marcus Welby solo primary care doctor is definitely dead now and the large insurance mergers are gonna drive a heck of a lot more provider consolidation. And we certainly have had a lot of provider consolidation so the question I'd put back to you guys, given the focus is, do uh, are the actions these leaders taking enough given what's happening in the scaling of the health insurance market? Yeah, I think as you look at that, Doug, if you think about what Roy Hinman has done or what Rashika has done, they're showing results. They're showing bend in costs, reductions in hospitalizations, reductions in ER visits, and they're showing it where they're taking the risk. So the question then becomes, can can that type of group and expand fast enough that in essence, the health plans become, for example, like with Roy Hinman with Humana, it's the marketing organization. It's the aggregator for the patients that the doctor then takes risk for, and they provide that expertise and through these mergers, maybe they provide the marketing expertise, maybe they provide some reinsurance expertise, or for those providers who aren't savvy enough to manage risk, provide that medical management expertise to them as they make the shift. Um, and perhaps that's why you're seeing some of these mergers is they recognize the shift's gonna happen and they've gotta figure out what role they're playing. So get really big now to, to figure out that role. What about you, Greg, any thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and Roy, uh... Uh, omitted from my opening here is uh, very active in the Medicare Advantage space. So obviously he's partnering with some of these consolidating health plans and they are building their whole strategy of, of providing coordinated, seamless, more cost-effective care through, in essence, integrated delivery systems built on coordinated primary care practices. And that model is... Uh, evident here in uh, California through the CareMore system and many other active risk-bearing entities who are in the Medicare Advantage space. So again, this would be more of a, a nuanced shift of a business as usual strategy, albeit in the domain of risk, whereas Rashika and Iora Health are veering in the direct practice space which is a disintermediation play, if you will, by primary care physicians to go direct to the, cons to, to the employer. However, <laughs> they're also, uh, as we learned on, uh, during the interview, uh, Iora Health is now working with Humana uh, and they're going in partnership in a direct practice model uh, to the employer with a third party intermediary being a health plan. So, you know, it's hard as, as we look at, okay, who are the best in class here to restructure healthcare, to facilitate the triple aim, uh, the goals of the triple aim. It seems like there's this patchwork out there of different models and different options, whether any one of or them as, an, as a group create parity between consolidation in the health plan space to me that's another question however i can't see health plans operating without credible doctors in local marketplaces agreed and i found it interesting as you said that we learned from um rushika that he was beginning to work with humana obviously roy 
uh, Henry is working with Humana, and uh, I'm not I'm sh- I'm not sure. We didn't ask Jay about their Medicare Advantage work if they in fact were. But I thought that that was interesting. These very innovative practices, one, Roy, since 1998, doing full risk Medicare Advantage with Humana, we're doing that. And so if you think about that from the relationship with the Aetna-Humana merger, does Humana has this great expertise around Medicare and Medicare Advantage work. And is some of that related to their ideas around trying some of these innovative practice approaches, getting first rate primary care docs to help them out? or take some risk for that? And do they bring that expertise then into Aetna, who has shown some success in the ACO world with their banner relationship? Um, And I'm just wondering how that'll play out over time, whether you're bringing two different expertise types together to try and come up with the the solution to the future as we try to use population health to push down the costs and and achieve the triple aim. Well, let's just say there's tension here (laughs) 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 because, because, if you're going to do uh, only medically appropriate care, evidence-based, uh, in a capitated or uh, bundled or quality type contract, you're going to reevaluate essentially an open system that has direct access to specialists, which has created essentially the, the cost um, situation that we, we've experienced. So it remains to be seen uh, how aggressive these primary care entities get and how much uh, redundant capacity or excess capacity they create in the fee-for-service fee model by having much more of a prudent primary referral relationship with specific specialists who are much more sensitive and responsive to prudent utilizing versus a fee-for-service incentivized system. Agreed. And I think that takes us to the second topic when we've sort of been delving and talking around a little bit, which is some of these mergers. And Doug, you've looked at these and typically have some unique opinions on what happens as you merge and get bigger. Does it create savings or not? Your thoughts on the Anthem-Cigna merger and the uh, potential merger, I guess, and the Aetna-Humana potential merger? Well, the Anthem-Cigna is much more is very interesting because they now are direct competitors with every blues plan in the country and they've competed in a number of areas but in essence the blues are really the only hometown choice left other than some small much smaller health insurance plans now you have these major carriers and anthem seems to be leaving behind its blue cross heritage except in probably a few of its original home markets um, and there's just going to be huge digestion issues going on. I mean, you, you'll basically see a, what next, how long does it take a major airline to merge, right? How long is it going to take these organizations to actually merge their operations and find savings? So we're talking years and, uh, it's really the accumulation of market power, which we've already had a lot of provider consolidation. I think it's, we're going to see the acceleration on that side of the the, the equation so are we 10 years away from three major systems in most markets maybe two so, so is this like the cold war where you've got you know this consolidation on the provider side that's been picking up steam rather rapidly and now you've got it on the payer side to kind of reach some equilibrium there uh, I think the cold war is a great analogy I don't think we're going to get to equilibrium for a while 
So does it, at the end of the day, help us? Does it create better? Well, I think five years from now, we'll be talking about how assets are being unbundled because they've, in many cases, scale doesn't always help. So will we truly have a national health care market? I don't think so. I think that's very far in the future. So, so uh, Greg, from the left coast, how do you look at this? Obviously, they've been a lot more innovative out there, but what do these mergers look like to you? I think we have some history here that, for the most part, the executives do well, but uh, sometimes one or more years later, there's an awful lot of charges for discontinued operations and some sort of getting back to our you know our knitting kind of talk about uh what doug mentions about some of these divestitures who knows it's the same dynamics that we've seen in the financial services world where it's we've gone to massive consolidation and we've created these systemically uh too big to fail type entities and now it seems like we're replaying that same dynamic um, in the health payer space. But it seems on one level, as Doug noticed, it's just a normal reaction to all the consolidation that we've been seeing for decades now uh, on the provider side. So at one level, maybe it's just parenting. Oh, by the way, um, these deals are subject to regulatory approval and there will probably be a, a fair amount of slicing and dicing uh, of existing portfolios if one or both of them have the shot of getting of gaining regulatory approval. But the track record is not good. You know, scale and consolidation has not uh, passed back to the end user, whether it's the member paying the premium or the, the co-insurance in the premium or the employer who's providing the benefit plan. So uh, jury's out. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's a great point. And also, Doug, what you brought up about this national approach, you know, creating these national and, and as you said, Greg, too big to fail. And it sort of clicks in my head suddenly with some news that came out this week around the co-ops that essentially of the 24, 23 of them or 24 of them, 23 lost money. And they're not hitting their targets. So are we going to see the end of these smaller regional or statewide or other plans over the long term? I don't know. Now, are you talking co-ops, Fred? Yeah, the co-ops. Yeah. Now, the co-ops are interesting derivative strain that seems to be kind of the consolidation price for giving up the public option. Right. <laughs> It was an appeasement to, to, to not have really a, the, a public option, a Medicare E for everyone, if you will, type of entity uh, centrally. So these co-ops with state domiciled, nonprofits, community entities, almost very much like the early days of, of, of HMOs post HMO Act when they all came up as nonprofit locally you know, local community DNA service-driven entities. Those are co-ops, but co-ops are trying to operate on a plan and in a level and completing with the big boys in a substantially disadvantaged 
environment. So I can't imagine that and the fact that their one was profitable, you know, that's like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> not bad I'm glad you're that. excited by those results. Well, well, well but the, the, the numbers are not good. Let's face it. You know, you know, you know, if I'm a bean counter that, you know, or investor, that, that's not a good situation. But the bottom line is they're all startups. Who's going to break even, let alone make a profit in year one as a startup in this business? Right. I, I, Recent numbers from year two don't look too good either, unfortunately. <laughs> but you know, I think uh, starting up a health plan is difficult, and they, they probably bit off a little more than they could chew. Much less talking about their ability to scale and compete against the huge. Well, number one, competing at Blue Cross a huge challenge, just in every state. But now they've got the big three, right? Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let me turn it on. Turn it back to you, Fred. I mean. What, what do you see? I mean, you've been at this a while. Uh, there's ebb and flow here, uh, and there's some evolution in um, approach to the marketplace and, and, and sophistication in terms of skill sets and infrastructure. I mean, is this a good thing from your point of view? I think, as you Paul pointed out, the jury's out. These typical things, whether it's airlines or banks, financial services, et cetera, have not been shown to necessarily generate what the, what the hope for reason was for the, the mergers. I do get excited when I think about knowing a little bit more about Humana and Aetna, that Humana's got some of these innovative projects going on, whether it's a Rashika or a Roy Hinman, and Aetna's shown some success with some of their ACOs with, with some of those hospital systems and providers that maybe things like that will allow for an aggregation of better expertise that ultimately leads us down the road to achieving the triple aim. Um, but I do think, uh, and, you know, we'll have to wait and see, as you said, five years or, or longer, and depending how long some of these take and how they slice and dice them up, it's going to have a major impact. So how does a uh, accountable health or a population level focus cross against this type of mobilization that's going on consolidation and trying to partner up and culturally assimilate entities like a Humana and an Aetna. How does this all play out, you know, in this quest for more effective, efficacious population health strategy? Well, I, I don't know that they necessarily link correctly because if you think all healthcare is local and you're trying to set up these unique population health-based approaches at a local level with uh, various social determinants of health in different communities that are different from others that perhaps having a national overarching organization does not necessarily um, solve that problem other than the fact that perhaps there's expertise in those organizations or the bringing together, for example, of Medicare expertise with uh, other expertise and, uh, and creating better systems that way. But I don't know that from a population health approach, it necessarily creates a better environment to do population health. So why don't we spend a little bit of time talking about Health of Eight and what you guys saw at that conference you were at up in Boston this last week. Yeah, so Health of Eight is... A pretty dynamic, interactive workshop format led by the Xavier Health Innovations Innovation Center, which has a focus on health and education. And they really have, uh, they really spent the first couple hours walking through first healthcare trends, 10 key healthcare trends, and then 
10 overall consumer trends and re- and then the afternoon late morning mid at mid morning to late afternoon is really spent uh, bringing people together and generating insights and and applications and uh, really uh, you know it's a really a dynamic event and we we kind of track that on our Twitter feeds so we link to pictures and summaries of all the trends from you know smart robots and getting connected through kid our kids and a whole number of things so it was uh it was a very dynamic opportunity to hear insights from people like dr you know danny sands and the other participants so let me ask you this um of those 10 trends you heard which which excited each of you the most and and greg which ones do you think may have been just hype or will turn out to be hype in the future well, you know, I would defer to the e-futurist there because um, uh, I was head down tweeting most of these trends. So. <laughs> you sure were. There were a lot of tweets coming out. So let, let's turn so, that over to Doug as the futurist yeah. guy. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think all the, look, all the trends and trends are not fad. So they've been observable for a period of time. The real issue with all the trends, whether the consumer trends or the healthcare trends, is the speed of adoption. So at what point will we all have robots in our homes or a sizable percentage of the population? So certain technologies like robots, you know, will take longer to scale than the adoption of cell phones. So we've seen some really huge technologies and applications, whether it's uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, social media applications that have gained widespread adoption. And from the early 2000s to now, we've gone from the internet being an essential part of nearly everyone's life in terms of having access. So I think all the trends are on target. The real issue is, how does it fit in and how fast will these things be adopted by huge swaths of the population? Yeah. And there's and so much, I just want to add that, uh, you know, there, these are really broad, far reaching, uh, lots of uh, questions around the rate of acceptance and the trajectory here is lots of these variables are interacting over privacy versus data brokers and how's this information uh, ultimately being used and who is it serving yeah we get it that a lot of this stuff is uh the typical cheerleading around quantified self and digital health and consumer empowerment and health literacy, engagement, more prudent utilization of healthcare resources, but at a cost. And what's not clear is what those costs are, but every day there's new stuff around intrusiveness of this technology, about privacy data breaches, who is the information serving, you know, being just uh, the tsunami of, of um, advertising that's a that's a byproduct of surrendering this type of information so it, I don't know for me it was like gee it's it's hard to say whether these are legitimate projections or 
whether there's just going to crash and burn because there's too much controversy around them. So, I, well, you you can take specific areas. So one healthcare trend was called telehealth, the new frontier. Well, delivering health information over the phone, not new. It's been around for a long time. If you say, okay, telehealth, I got to have video. So, you know, some things like that are clearly gaining widespread adoption within certain medical specialties that are less complex and don't require laying on hands. And in the context of, uh, you know, doctor-patient relationship, curbing the cost of the 1% driving, you know, uh, a large percentage of healthcare costs, you know, solutions have been being developed to address that over a long period of time. So some of these trends are clearly not that far off because they're rapidly being adopted across the board um, in many population groups. So I'll sort of tie this back to that merger stuff and and particularly, Greg, your um, discussion of privacy and, and, uh, and your data when we put all the when these merge together and we suddenly have 60 70 80 million people in the database does it just mean a larger hack <laughs> well it, it sure <laughs> seems like uh, these uh, lifelock services you know and uh, the the massive amount of credit uh, and identity theft protection that is being bought bought by some of these entities uh, for massive uh, accounts and uh, you know to me answers that question but uh, I, I don't know genie's out of the bottle we're not going backwards but the question is can we create dialogue and manage this process as uh, as citizens and that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast i want to thank my colleagues fred goldstein and douglas goldstein for their time and insights today do follow both of them on twitter via at fs goldstein and at e futurist respectively We do this weekly at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. Join us next week as we launch our deep dive series into population health and ACOs. We'll feature population health innovation from one of each ACO type, physician-led, hospital-sponsored, and health plan-enabled. Until then, for Fred Goldstein and Douglas Goldstein, this is Greg Master saying bye now.